you just, very fitting for our sermon series that we get started, which is going to focus on God's grace. And as we, we see these testimonies, um, what we see is that we, we serve and we are loved by not a dead God, but a living God, a God who lives, whose spirit pours grace into our lives. And one of the chief places that he has chosen to pour grace into our lives is here in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. In fact, as we go through, we realize that the bride of Christ is precious in his sight. And this is the place where Christ has himself ordained and designated that all our earthly and temporal needs would be met during our journey here until we see him in glory. And as we heard in Hyun's testimony and we heard last week in Jason's testimony, it's not just an intellectual knowledge that Christ brings into our lives, but the grace that he pours into our lives is a grace that lives. And it's a grace that lives in our lives every minute, every moment, with every trial and every challenge. And that's what we're going to be addressing for the next who knows how long, um, until the Lord comes, I guess, and every day that we have together, we have had the pleasure of walking through the footsteps of Peter through the Gospels. And now finally at last, after we promised such a long time ago, we are finally at First Peter. And so our sermon series is entitled, Standing Firm in the True Grace of God. And our sermon title for today is A Testimony to the True Grace of God. And what I'm going to try and do for you today is to give you an overview of First Peter. So often when we are lovers of expositional teaching, we go verse by verse, and sometimes it can be days, months, years, maybe even decades sometimes for us to get through a book. And sometimes by the time we get to the end, we know the trees very well, but it's hard to see the forest. And so what I want to do is to give you sort of a jet tour of First Peter and maybe a little bit of a framework this morning of how to study First Peter on your own so that you can be edified at home on your own and hopefully here as well, be strengthened and encouraged by the word of the Lord. So as we come to 1 Peter this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open our hearts and our minds to see the wonderful grace that he has in store for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the testimony of lives such as Jason and Hyun and Jane and Nikki and countless others here who are among us, Lord. How amazing is your grace that you would send your son to come and live among us, to give up his throne and glory, and to suffer all things, and to die a horrific death on the cross. Why? Out of love for us, to provide us forgiveness of sins, to live a life that we could never live, so that we might know you, that we might know your love, that we might know your grace, and that we might stand in awe of your glory, of how amazing a God you are, and how much we have received And you have prepared for us, Lord, works of holiness that we might be transformed and that we might one day be testimonies to your patience, to your love, to your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for this. And so as we come to your word, the place in which you have chosen to pour out your spirit and your love and your grace to us, Lord, open our hearts and minds. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. We fall short of your glory. We fall short of your grace. 
And yet, as Jan alluded to earlier, Lord, you are a God who has paid for those sins, and you are a God who is rich in grace and mercy. So we call upon you to be merciful and gracious to us, to cleanse us, Lord, this day from all unrighteousness, and open our hearts and minds that we might see your glory, and that glory might come and transform our hearts and lives, and might overflow, Lord, and transform the world around us, and draw others, sinners who are in desperate need of you, that they might feed in your grace and know you as the fountain of living waters. In your name we pray, amen. Well, our series up until this point, as we've looked at the life of First Peter, I hope in some ways has prepared us to hear the words of the mature Peter at a later time in his life. And hopefully what you've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew and also for a portion in the Gospel of John I'm hoping that you've seen through Peter's life the framework of a man who is very much like each one of us. I know very much like me. Uh, In many ways, a gregarious man. In many ways, a personable man, uh, a charismatic man, uh, a leader who many people gravitated towards, a strong man. And yet at the same time, as we saw many of the virtues that we value in our American society were very much in Peter. He was an independent man. He was a self-sufficient man. He was a man who took care of his business and handled things. And we would maybe even say possibly potentially a proud man who was able to take care of every one of his own needs in his own mind. And yet what we saw is that as Christ came into his life, and brought grace into his life, and pursued him, and ministered to him, and called him to himself, and called and made Peter a disciple. As Peter walked down that path of discipleship, the path of faith, Peter's entire life was broken by the grace of Christ. That just about everything that Peter valued or highly esteemed in his own life that he thought was a value, he discovered was actually a liability in his walk with Christ. And yet we saw that Christ was gracious with him and loving to him. And at each point that Christ broke Peter gently and softly, the Lord was pouring the love of Christ into his life and pouring his grace into his life and transforming Peter. And so we saw Peter walk that walk of the cross and ultimately fall as he tried to stand on his own because he was not strong enough to follow Christ on his own. And yet we saw last week and the week before, that Christ did not abandon him when he failed. But Jesus was a good and gracious shepherd, as only God is. And he came and he pursued Peter. And he forgave Peter because of the cross. And he was able to restore Peter because of the resurrection. And he poured into him a new life. And Peter's life was never the same. As we look at Peter and Paul, we see maybe two different images which are covered perhaps in many of our conversion stories, where Paul was this very dramatic road to Damascus conversion experience where the light of God's glory shines and he falls off his, his ride at that time, a donkey or a horse, and, and sees the glory of God and is radically converted. And Peter is kind of like the, the coffee percolated, the slow drip. You know, it's a slow, slow, slow process, which I'm sure is much more like my life over a period of time where the Lord is gradually breaking us. But the testimony as we step back and look at Peter's life in its entirety is really a life that was both broken and transformed and made anew by the grace of God in one place, in Jesus Christ. 
And that really is the testimony as we look at 1 Peter. 30 years later, probably, as he writes to Christians who are suffering in the face of persecution and trials for their faith in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, Peter is writing to them to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to provide them with what they need to find a way through a persecution that is only intensifying day by day, minute by minute. And what is Peter's message, if we're going to say and step back and give you just an overall overview to try and tie the whole book together? His message is simply this in a nutshell. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 1 Peter 5.12, that's how he summarizes the entire book of 1 Peter. That what they need the most at this time is not necessarily more finances, a better job, a better spouse, a better church, a better group of elders. What they need is the grace of God. And Peter is so fit and so primed to tell them this story and to minister to them in this way. Why? Because he was the man who denied the grace of Christ and ultimately was broken and was transformed and was given new life and reconciliation and restoration to the Lord by what? The grace of God in Christ that is found at the cross. So that's the framework of 1 Peter. And it's most appropriate that we're starting 1 Peter, really a book which is a testimony to the grace of God that we're doing it this Sunday. Because this Sunday, does anybody recall or remember what this Sunday is? This Sunday is being celebrated across the world in Reformed churches because this is Reformation Sunday. Because October 31st is Reformation Day. And most churches will celebrate Reformation Sunday on the last day of, uh, the last Sunday, excuse me, of October. And what's being celebrated is that on October 31st, in 1517, an Augustinian German monk nailed 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And those 95 theses that he nailed on that door on that day were a protest, uh, a gentle protest, but a protest of sorts listing 95 objections to the Roman Catholic Church's sale of indulgences. Indulgences were an initiative of the Pope, the Pope being a Latin and Greek word for the Father, or as is referred to the Pope today, the Holy Father, a name which is reserved for God alone but is taken by a man who presumes to be the head of the church and ironically presumes to stand in the place of, of all people, who? St. Peter, our namesake and the man whose epistle we will study today. And hopefully as we walk through, I'm hoping that you will see some huge distinctions between the man Peter and the men who proposed to stand in his place and rule the church as the Holy Father. And indulgences were sold at that period in time for a price, for a sum of money. They were a little bit like municipal bonds. The Catholic Church would sell indulgences for the purpose of raising money. 
and they would sell indulgences, the indulgence, the purpose of the indulgence, if you purchase this indulgence from the Catholic Church, satisfaction for your sins would be accomplished through the purchase of this indulgence. Indulgences were sold by the Catholic Church to provide satisfaction for your sins before God. And so people would come from all over the place. They would travel to different counties when indulgences were sold for the purpose of coming in and for a price and for a sum of money to gather together everything that they had for the thought that somehow, in some way, if I pay this amount of money, my sins will be satisfied before God. And the Pope at that time, Leo X, I believe it was, was selling these indulgences for the purpose of raising money to build, of all places, what? St. Peter's Basilica. It is a church that is probably one of the most famous churches in the Roman Catholic Church in the world. It is attended by up to maybe, they say, sometimes even 10 to 20,000 people a day, millions every year, come to the Vatican City to see one of the most elaborate and one of the most grand and one of the most spectacular churches in the world. And this was the purpose for selling indulgences, to raise the money so that they could build that church. And Martin Luther, who wrote the 95 Theses, when he nailed those to the door, I will say to you, to summarize the 95 Theses, essentially what he was doing was he was protesting against a counterfeit grace. He was protesting against a counterfeit grace. And just to give you a taste of this, thesis number 62, I'm going to read to you what it says. It says, thesis number 62 says, the true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Now, one of the implications that he was pointing out was the glory of the church, its finances, its churches, and its buildings, which was being proposed as the place of grace. And what Martin Luther was doing was he was coming straight for the church, and he was saying, look, if God's grace is his unmerited favor, if God's grace is his free gift of love in Christ that was purchased for us on the cross, that Christ died once and for all, and his blood atoned for our sins. And it is a gift that is given freely, as Scripture testifies, based on the accomplishments and merit of Christ. Then what are we doing paying for it? And what is the church and the leader of the church, and the man who stands in the place of allegedly St. Peter, doing, coming to people, and charging them to have a right relationship with God. It's an issue of what you're selling is a counterfeit grace. Now, we look at that and say, okay, we don't live in that time in that era, but if you travel to many churches today, you will find that the same opportunities exist, especially if you go to Rome. That there are opportunities for you to buy a mass or buy candles on behalf of deceased relatives so that you can pray for them, so that they can get out of purgatory. 
I was at one at the Cathedral of St. Francis of Assisi where you stood in line and they had candles which you were able to purchase and they had a book where you could write a mass and you gave them money and you went to the end of the line and you put down the candle and you weren't even able to light the candle. You just left the candle at another place and allegedly that did something for a deceased relative. And who knows what happened to those candles. They probably reappeared the next day. We look at that and, and we're horrified Are we not? And we should be. And yet the truth is, as Martin Luther was pointing out, nothing really has changed in the world because we live in a time and an era as sinful men where we are continually looking for counterfeit graces to fix our lives. We are continually looking for a grace that does not have Christ, a grace that does not have the cross, a grace that will provide a solution for our problems, Perhaps that grace is a spouse. Perhaps that grace is a career. Perhaps that grace is a church. Perhaps that grace is an elder board. But our hearts are disposed to look for counterfeit graces. That's who we are. That's our nature. And we live in a world that sells that. And that is nothing new. Because when we go back to 1 Peter, as we walk through it today, and we're going to look at the context of 1 Peter, we're going to see that as Christians, as children of grace... Our continual battle when things are difficult and things are hard is always going to be, are we going to live by the true grace of Christ and his cross or are we going to settle for second best and gravitate towards counterfeit graces, things that provide short-term comfort but in the big picture just lead us further astray from the Lord? And this is the scenario and situation that Peter is addressing. It's a scenario that is not dissimilar in many ways from what Martin Luther was trying to address. And so it's no surprise when you look at Martin Luther and you look at the writings on different books of the Bible that when he came to 1 Peter, in light of the challenges he was facing against the counterfeit grace, Martin Luther said of 1 Peter that 1 Peter is one of the grandest and most noble books of the entire New Testament, for in it is found the true grace and gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he went on to say that once you've read 1 Peter, you will find that almost everything that you need to live the Christian life is found in 1 Peter. So I hope that piques your curiosity and gets you going to read through 1 Peter and for our series for the weeks ahead. So turn with me if you would, and we'll begin by reading 1 Peter And we'll read through verses 1 and probably through 13 and 14. The greeting to the elect pilgrims. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. When we look at 1 Peter, you can tell from the flavor. We spoke together as a congregation through portions of 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And in many ways, many of the hymns that we sang were very much a tribute to the content of what we're going to talk about today. We're really talking about a framework for the gospel. We're talking about a testimony to grace. That is what ties all of this together. And what I want to do as we look at this testimony to grace I want to walk you through an overview, a big picture, and we're going to go through three different sections, I hope. We're going to deal with the section of the authorial intent of 1 Peter. We're going to go through the context of 1 Peter. And finally, we're going to look at the purpose of 1 Peter. And if you look at those three subjects that we're going to go through, they're really the framework for what is referred to as reformed hermeneutics. Hermeneutics being the interpretation of the Bible. One of the things that we're celebrating in Reformation Sunday is that the 95 Theses laid the path, God used that through his spirit, for a recovery of the true gospel of grace in the church. And that didn't happen out of a vacuum. Martin Luther didn't just get together one day and go to the wall and, and pound in 95 theses. He had been, what people fail to remember many times, is that Martin Luther was a professor at the university or the seminary there in Wittenberg, and he was assigned the task of studying through the Psalms in the Old Testament and then Romans in the New Testament. And it was his time in the Word of God, studying the Word of God, where God revealed his grace the true grace of the gospel in Christ to Martin Luther. 
And this is what laid the foundation for him to see that everything that the Catholic Church was doing was wrong and was a counterfeit grace. It was from the Word. And so we celebrate the recovery of the gospel, but we also celebrate where that gospel of grace was given to man in his word and the studies that came from that. And as we look at a reformed hermeneutic, one of the things that we look at when we get started is this issue of authorial intent. What do we mean by authorial intent? Many of you probably know you've been taught this at your church, but it's the notion of we are to understand a book in light of the author who wrote that book. What was that author intending when he wrote that book? It sounds obvious, does it not? And yet, I have to say, how often have I listened to radio shows or seen TV shows where an author is being interviewed, and the interviewee gets really excited because there's a certain part of that book that has really touched their heart and their soul, and they go and tell the author, well, in chapter so-and-so, you said A, B, C, D, and E, and didn't you really mean that it was all about blah, 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 and everything that they talk about is really about their own life, not what the author wrote. And the author sometimes will look at them and say, well, no, that's, that's really, I'm pleased that that had that impact on you, but really this was the intent. And I've heard on one occasion on a radio interview where the interviewee just refused to let it go because he just was going to corner that author and let that author know that in some way, shape, or form, they had written that section or that portion for them, and it, it was a piece of literature that was really all about their life. And as crazy as that sounds, so often when we read the Bible, many times that's the approach that we take, and that's what we refer to as eisegesis, reading into the text things that we want to see in the text. But the issue when we really look at how are we supposed to really understand a book, we must really consider what was... Who was the author, and what was his intention in writing this book? And so when we look at 1 Peter and say, okay, who was the author, and what was his intention or purpose in writing the book, we're given that information right at the beginning in verse 1, in the opening greeting. The opening greeting says what? Pretty obvious, right? It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In Greek, it says, Petros... Apostolos insu Christu. Okay, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when we look at who the human author is, Peter, hopefully what you've seen as we've walked through Matthew is that this is no longer Simon, the son of Jonah or John. That the author of this text is the one who's been given the name Petros, which we talked about in Matthew 16. He is the rocky one. He is, as Jesus referred to him as rocky. He is no longer a man of the flesh, but the author of this text is one who has been given a name by Christ to represent the new life that he has in Christ, a new life that is based on who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is no longer the fisherman by the sea. And as we move forward and look at, okay, we're talking about Peter who's writing this. Peter who? Peter the Apostle. The word apostle comes from or is connected to the Greek verb 
apostello, apostle is the noun, and apostello is the verb. And the verb apostello means to send forth, to go out, to send out. And when we look at what an apostle is, the apostle is a unique biblical term. And it's a biblical term that is given to the 12 disciples minus Judas, including the replacement Matthias, and then also the apostle Paul. They were all men, as we look through the text, with the exception of Paul, who lived with and were part of Jesus' ministry and were called his disciples. When we include Paul, they were all men who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, his sufferings, because there is possibly some suggestion that Paul may well have been in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was crucified. So they are men who witnessed the visible suffering, the death of Jesus, but there were also men who what? Witnessed the resurrected Christ and saw him in person and were ministered to him in person. And then they were men who were commissioned, given the great commission to go into all the world, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach men to obey everything I have commanded. That these were men who were commissioned by God through Christ to go out and build and establish his church. And for that end and for that task, they were men who were among the first to be new covenant believers after the cross, men whose lives were filled with the Spirit at Pentecost and Paul at a separate occasion during his conversion, that these were men who were transformed by the grace of God and Christ, by the cross, by the atonement, by forgiveness, and by the power of the Spirit to go forth and be the first stones which the Lord would use to build his church upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles were. And when you look at it to make perhaps a contemporary illustration, the notion of an apostle is not dissimilar to our concept of an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who is sent. He is sent both as a messenger and he is sent as a representative. And he is one who is legally and officially commissioned to do this job. And when he is commissioned to do this job, the importance is what? The ambassador? No, not really. The importance is based on who's sending him and the message he has to bring and the authority he represents. So we see this in the United States, and we've seen this recently as our ambassador to Libya was assassinated, and it created quite a stir. Why? Because that ambassador was one who was commissioned officially by the President of the United States on behalf of the people of the United States to bear the authority of the United States, to bear the message of the United States, and to bear the representation of the United States in its entirety. And so an assault on that ambassador is the equivalent of what? An assault on all of us, is it not? And certainly that was the intent of that attack. And so when we look at that, the significance and the importance is based on the message, the authority, and the one who sends. So if there was an ambassador from Mark Chin's household who went to Libya, he would probably survive for the end of his days because nobody would give two hoots, right? Who cares about Mark Chin? Who cares about his message? 
Small potatoes, no big deal. But when it comes from the President of the United States, it's a different matter, is it not? And so when we look at the authorial intent and we look at Peter, the apostle, the apostle of who? The issue is who was the one who's sending him? And the greeting says, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the real author of 1 Peter is who? Jesus Christ. Because the issue is not the messenger, it's the message and the sender and the authority with which this person is being sent. And so we see Peter is indeed the human author and the face, but ultimately the author of this is Jesus Christ. And as we go through the epistles in the New Testament, as we read, what we're reading are the very words of Jesus Christ given by his spirit to the apostles to be laid down for the church and for people of every age. And so then the million-dollar question comes as we look at this, as we go through Scripture, we have to say, okay, if Christ is the author, what was his purpose and what was his intent in writing this book? Which brings us to our second subject. We dealt with authorial intent and that it is Christ, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who sits on the right hand of the Father, who has given this book to the church for a particular time and for a particular place. What is his intent or what is his purpose? And to answer that question, we have to deal with what the context is. What is the context of 1 Peter? What is, and the principle that we're using as we look at this is the idea of sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And I'm going to walk you through that. We have to say, if this is God's word, what is the best way for us to understand his word and to understand his intention in writing this? And one of the tools that Martin Luther brought forth in Sola Scriptura is that scripture interprets scripture. The idea or the notion that if we're going to get an interpretation of scripture, if God is truly the author, who better than God to explain what he's talking about? And that's why he's given us an entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so one of the key ways in which we honor God's authority in writing Scripture is to go to him in prayer and to go to him through the rest of Scripture to understand. So when we come to something that's very hard or difficult to understand, it's really going to God. Sure, you could come to me, you could go to Huey, you could go to Jason, and we will give you the best answers that we can. But how good are those answers in comparison to the word of the Lord? And it's one of the reasons we encourage you to be strong in the scriptures and read through beginning to end and see the big picture so that you can understand the context. And I liken the example to this. <clears throat> If you were to go and see a particular movie and you were to walk in, I, I used to be an old Clint Eastwood fan. I hope that doesn't get me disbarred from the church here. But you would go to see a Clint Eastwood movie and he's always the one who is getting justice done. And you come in, let's say, partway through the movie and you see Clint Eastwood shooting a man. What would you say? My goodness, this is a horrific thing. We should say it's a horrific thing, right? But within the context, you're saying, you know, Clint Eastwood looks like he's the villain. 
But we've totally misunderstood everything, have we not? Because Clint Eastwood is always the good guy. Because we haven't seen the movie from beginning to the end. And when you look at scripture, not to debase it like a Clint Eastwood movie, and Lord forgive me for that, but when you look at scripture in the same way, we are looking at God's word where he's telling a story from Genesis through Revelation. And if we're gonna understand things, we have to see the big picture as well as the small, and we have to see where does this really fit in? What is the context? And Peter, in the beginning, when you go through the greetings of each book of the Bible, especially the epistles, what you're given, because I used to always blow off the uh, greetings. I used to go through and say, just get me to the meat. Just get me to the solid stuff. Just get me the commands, the things that Mark Chin, the legalist, needs to do. But when you go and you look at the greetings, the greetings really give you the context of where this book fits in in the big picture of things. And when Peter comes in in verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. What he's done for you is he's given you the biblical context of where this book fits in in the entire story of Scripture. Because we're dealing with right now no longer Peter the disciple, right? Peter is no longer the follower who's tripping over his heels and resisting the cross. Christ has risen from the dead. Christ has shown himself to the disciples. Christ has reconciled them. He has forgiven them. He has come to them. And he has commissioned them to go out and establish his church. And Christ has inaugurated the new covenant. So Christ has, by this time, fulfilled the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the consummation of everything that the Old Testament has building up to has found its fulfillment in Christ and his arrival and the grace that he has given at the cross. And now there is a new era and that new era is the era of the Spirit and the era of the grace of God where the fullness of God's grace has been given to each one of us in Christ. That is where we stand. The law is no longer our intermediary before God. Christ is the intermediary before God. And so when we see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the whole context of where this book sits is brought to us. And now where are we? We're in a place where we're dealing with the early church, the very beginning of the new covenant. We stand in that place. We stand with those people as children of grace and children of the new covenant. And so we see the context of who Christ is sending this message to are not Old Testament Israelites who are bound by a series of law, but rather a community of believers whose lives have been transformed by the grace of God and Christ. But it doesn't stop there as we look at the context. As we consider the context, there's a historical context that is also laid out in the greeting because we're told that basically this is being sent to those who are throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what we're given by Peter here is the historical and geographical context that the church now is no longer a Jerusalem church in Acts, Jesus has told them that the Spirit would come and this would no longer be just a Jewish religion, but God would fulfill his promise to Abraham 
that through the seed of Abraham, God would bless, what? Many nations. And that's something that we enjoy through that promise. And that promise would come directly through the highway of the cross. And as we're here with that list of names, what we're given is a list of names of regions that exist in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And if you were to look on a map, you would see the Middle East is here, Jerusalem is here, Syria is right above it just north. You would see Antioch, which is one of the first places where the church was established outside of Jerusalem, which was a multinational church, which was used as the missionary send-out for Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, and Antioch was really the launching pad. And as Christ goes and says, you will be filled in Acts with the Spirit, and the gospel is going to go out from Judea to where? Samaria, the half-breeds, and then to all nations. When we read First Peter, we're seeing that that has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled because Asia Minor is the first Roman stop outside of the Middle East, and it stands strategically between Rome and the Middle East. And ultimately, Paul would go Asia Minor, and then he would go Rome, and then ultimately he would go Spain as the gospel would spread west and go throughout the entire Roman Empire. So we see here our context is the fulfillment of Christ's promise that these people who Peter is writing to, these people are the fulfillment already of the promises that have been given by the new covenant. But here's the other side of that. They live in Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, all these tiny places in Asia Minor. And when we look at the history books, what we discover is that those were pagan territories. They were pagan territories that promoted the worship of idolatry. And not only did they worship the local idols and myths, but the emperor worship of Rome was actually more passionate and greater in those provinces than it was in Rome itself. Because the men and the politicians who ruled those areas had to have some way to accommodate all these different minorities and at the same time keep the control of Rome. And one of the things that facilitated that was the perpetuation of a false religion. You could say in the same way Hitler perpetuated the religion of the Third Reich. And so these politicians and leaders of these areas promoted the worship of the emperor of Rome more intensely and more passionately. And they were also, as big leaders in small towns would be, much more insecure, much more paranoid and much more suspect of anybody who did not keep in line with what the party line was. What does that mean? Gatherings and community of people who put together organizations that were not participating in the emperor worship in Rome were considered to be highly suspect and subversive. And so we see in these areas that early in Christianity, the persecution of Christians who had an exclusive allegiance to Christ, who did not participate in many of the pagan rites that held together the community, these people were held in high suspicion, and they were beyond that perceived to be both a cultural 
and a political threat. What is the outcome of that? Many of you have had the pleasure of growing up as Asians in Southern California, which is a place which is replete with Asians. But as I told Julie many times, I grew up in Canada. And when I was there, a long time ago, right? 60s, 70s, 80s, before the major influx, we were one of the few Chinese families in the greater community. And at that time, there was huge amount of racism and you were not really welcome people. And as more came, things got more intense. And everybody would assume all these different things. And when I would round in the hospital, some of the doctors would say, um, you know, do you live in one of those mammoth homes? Because they were all concerned because the Asians were coming in and buying homes and basically tearing them down and putting up the monster homes. Because there was a big influx of Asians from Hong Kong when China was about to close. You know, you went through this time of high suspicion as the community changed and as people did not participate in the festivals and the events and the various cultural things that were going on in the community, you were highly suspect. Such is the nature of mankind. And this is what the Christians, this is the context of what the Christians were facing at this time. And as we go through 1 Peter, what you see is he provides us with the context of exactly the situation these people were facing. And we're identified with the problem to which Jesus was addressing. When you look at the letter in the beginning, it is not a narrative, it is a letter, because you see in the beginning there's an opening greeting, and you see at the end there's a closing greeting. And what we're told is that this is an epistle. And when you look at an epistle, it's different than what we've been going through, right? We've been going through the narrative of these people's lives. When you look at the epistles, the epistles had different purposes than the narratives of the Gospels. The narratives of the Gospels, when you look at John saying how he wrote, or the purpose that he wrote the Gospel of John, he says what? I wrote this so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you might believe in him, and that believing in him, that you might have eternal life. The purpose of the Gospels as narrative is a testimony to who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Son of God, the Christ. But when you get to the epistles, we're in a different time and we're in a different place. Christ has come, the cross has happened, he's been raised from the dead. And if I can give it to you into, you into a nutshell, epistles were the biblical counseling of the early church. They were letters which were written because there was a problem, more often than not, in the early church. And the apostles, the men who were filled with the spirit of Christ, were called upon to write letters to communicate through the spirit Christ's word of how they were to address these problems. So you go through almost all the epistles in the New Testament and you realize that for most of them, there was a problem that was going on in the church at a particular time and a particular place. And these letters were written to provide Christ's solutions for their problems. And so when we look at the context of 1 Peter and say, okay, these are Christians, Jews and Gentiles, who are stuck in these areas of the Roman provinces where they are not welcome, where they are highly suspect, where they are seen as being subversive or a challenge to a way of life, 
we can see that they are in a very tenuous and difficult situation. And then when you read through 1 Peter and you see what he addresses, you get a feel for what they're going through. When you look at 1 verse 6, Peter says, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Trials are starting. And then he will go on and say fiery ordeals. And then he will talk about the fact that they are slandered by the community because they do not participate in the idolatry and the pagan rites. But then the other half, as he counsels them not to give it to slander or malice or bitterness or the old passions at the same time. And what comes out as you read through 1 Peter and look at each of the different problems he addresses is that this is a church that is being persecuted for its faith on the outside, but it's also suffering on the inside. That it's a twofold attack. That on the outside, they're being called into question in their jobs, in their workplace, in their livelihoods. But on the inside, as you look, as Peter addresses it, there's a suggestion that there are challenges in the home, there are challenges in the workplace, and there are challenges in the church. That there's a temptation here to go for counterfeit grace, to go back to the old ways. And you see that you're dealing with churches throughout Asia Minor that perhaps are on the verge of imploding, losing their faith and losing their hope as persecution starts to ratchet up because time frame, what we're looking here is we know from tradition that Peter was most likely executed during Nero's regime. That Nero burned the Christians after Rome was burned in 64 AD. That Nero died, we believe, in 68 AD. And so as we look at this text and the way things are set up in the context, we see that this is probably right before that time. And that persecution is starting to heat up and persecution is going to continue and what Peter has prophetically anticipated is that things are not going to get better. Things are only going to get worse. And what happens in our lives and our families when we're faced with those things? What happens when we have the difficult co-worker? What happens when we have the illness or the family disease, or the family conflict, or all of these difficulties comes. What happens when we lose our job and we're the provider for a family? We go for a particular period of time and we're able to say all the good things that the Bible tells us and we can talk about the sovereignty of God, but what eventually happens is the pressure mounts up. Is there not a propensity to go to our comfort zones? Is there not a propensity to withdraw? Is there not a propensity at times for conflict to happen in the home or with the people we love as stress increases and for us to really stumble and falter and get discouraged and wonder, is God really present? When is Jesus coming again? Did he really say that he would do all these things? Is he really my Lord? Does he really love me in this circumstance or this situation? How can the Lord love me if I'm unemployed? How can the Lord love me when I have a family member with a chronic illness? All of these questions come up. And if you've ever had the privilege of sitting in on biblical counseling or doing biblical counseling, those are precisely the questions that come up 
over and over again. And those are very real questions, and those are very legitimate questions. And they come from people who are struggling and doing the best they can to hold it together and honor the Lord in very, very, very difficult circumstances. So we must receive those questions and those issues with great compassion and great gentleness. And as we look at 1 Peter, who better than a man who was pressed on the path to the cross, who was squeezed from all sides, who ultimately faltered because he did not keep his eyes on Christ and ignored the word of the Lord, who denied his Savior three times, but who was forgiven, who was loved and restored. Who better than a shepherd like that to come alongside people who are suffering and struggling to keep their faith, to come and shepherd them and minister to them and tell them how they are to get through this. And so we've seen the biblical context, we've seen the historical context, and we've seen the local context of the situation, we've seen the problem at hand. And that sets us up to look at what was the purpose of First Peter. What was the purpose of First Peter? What was the ministry that the Holy Spirit called Peter to give to these people who were suffering from both without and within and who were on the verge, for some of them, of imploding, of being discouraged and losing hope? When we look at 1 Peter in the beginning, he opens the statement in verse 2 where he says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And when we go to the closing of his book in 1 First Peter 5, 12, what does it say? How does he close after he's opened by saying, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest? After saying that he wrote through Silvanus, our faithful brother, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What the Holy Spirit has done through the Apostle Peter is to come to this group of people, churches scattered throughout Asia Minor who are suffering, both from without and within. And he's there to proclaim to them that the one thing they need, the one thing they need is the grace of God in Christ. It seems counterintuitive, does it not? When Julie and I were preparing for our wedding and things were getting crazy and it seemed like there were 2,000 different pieces of logistics that we had to handle, I remember me being the tough guy saying to her, couldn't we just skip the wedding and go to the honeymoon? You know, is there no way that we can sort of bypass this altogether and just get to the good part? Yes, we're married and we get to be on a beach somewhere or go skiing somewhere. Uh, and that, that shows you how much sanctification, how much grace I need. But you look at that, and that's the propensity of our hearts, that when crisis is there, our first disposition is to say, what's the ticket out? How do I get out of this situation? Lord, how can this suffering be over? How can there be a job in place immediately? How can my unsaved coworker get saved immediately so they're more tolerable to deal with? 
You know, how can Cornerstone have an instant perfect leadership team, great elders, all the programs, snap our fingers and come together right now so that I can make my decision that this is a church I want to participate in for the rest of my life or maybe know I should be somewhere else? Why can't it all just come together like that? And yet we see Peter and 1 Peter doing none of those things. And instead, he brings them back to the cross. He brings them back to Christ. And he brings them back to the grace of Christ. And when we go through 1 Peter, you will see that the term grace is used eight times in five chapters, almost twice per chapter, because the Spirit of God wants to make this point and have this purpose. That what you need to stand in this time is not counterfeit grace, not a trip to Hawaii, not better pain medications or better people in your life. But really what you need is the grace of God in Christ. And I want to stop very, very briefly to say let's look at what we mean by grace because we use that all the time, do we not? We say grace before our meals. We say, talk about grace, you know, and we ask that people would have grace. What do we really mean by grace? And the term that we toss around so often is, is unmerited favor, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? And we have this notion of, you know, I'm speeding down the highway and a policeman pulls me over because I'm speeding, and mercy would be that he does not give me a ticket, right? Because I deserve the speeding ticket. And grace would be not only does he not give me the ticket, but he pulls out a couple of front row seats to the Laker game and gives those to me. And I'm like, wow, that's grace, right? I didn't do anything to deserve that. And that gives us sort of a notion of maybe what grace is. But it doesn't give us the entirety of grace because what Martin Luther identified with those 95 theses and the recovery of the gospel is that grace is only true grace if it begins with God. That God is a gracious God and God is the only one who gives grace. And that grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the free gift of his love. Grace is the free gift of his love. We don't do anything for it. We don't do anything to merit it. But it's given freely. But it's only given in one place. Where is it given? It's given in Christ. And it's given at the cross. And the fullest and greatest expression of God's grace in the entire Bible is found in the Gospels as God sends his son from glory, who gives up everything that he has to come and live in the armpit of the known world. Nazareth, if you've ever been there, hilly, rocky, dirt, hot, sweaty, difficult. And that he came and lived a life that we could never live. He suffered on our behalf horrifically. He died on the cross and bore our sins and bore the wrath which we should have received. But then he was raised on the third day and then he came after us and he pursued us and forgave us and reconciled us. 
And we look at grace when you look at grace like that. That is the definition of grace. That is the fullest expression of grace. And when we see that framework of grace, the cross is central and suffering is also central because we see grace is not just a giving. Grace is also an enduring. Grace is an endurance of evil. We don't see that many times. We think of grace as this person was gracious because he gave me something. But do we ever see grace in the context of this person was gracious because my wife is gracious to me because she endures with my evil? She puts up with my dirty socks wherever they are. She deals with me on days when I'm difficult or irritable or I'm short or I'm very much in the flesh. Grace is a giving, but grace is also an enduring. And the beauty of the grace of Christ is that he endured all things, most of all the wrath of God, but pain, difficulty, sorrow, and grief, and he did so on behalf of each one of us here in this room. That's grace. And that's the grace that Peter kicked against his entire life as we went through his discipleship. There was a continual resistance by Peter to say, I don't need the cross. You don't need the cross. Why do you have to suffer Jesus? We're going to find some way where we don't have to endure evil. I will strike with a sword. I will defend. I will do all these different things so that we can bypass the cross and you can become king. And Jesus says to him what? Get behind me, Satan, right? So the flip side of true grace is counterfeit grace. And if we really want to look at sin and sin in our lives, one of the frameworks for sin is that sin is a counterfeit grace without a cross, a counterfeit grace without Christ, a path where we feel that we can bypass all of those things and get to the good part. And so Peter, a man who has resisted that his entire life, but then has been broken and has been restored by the cross and has been given the gift of the cross and has been transformed by the cross, is called by the Spirit of God to give this group of people a message. And that message is this. The Lord's plan for you and his best grace for you is not to bypass the suffering and challenges which are on your plate. It's not to give you a ticket to Hawaii, but it's to open your eyes to see that even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of temptation, even in the face of suffering, even when it seems like everything is imploding and falling apart, the grace of Christ from the cross is sufficient for you to provide for your every need, to inform every aspect of your life, to give you joy in the face of those trials and to guide you through those trials and ultimately to open your eyes to see how much God really loves you. Because unless we see the magnitude of sin in this world, unless we see the magnitude of our own sin, how do we have an appreciation of the greatness of the grace of God and the greatness of the cross? We don't. And when we shortcut that and when we bypass that, ultimately what we're saying is we don't need God's grace. We don't need his forgiveness. I can handle this on my own. So Peter writes this 
under the influence of the Holy Spirit to come and minister to these people and to say, don't miss out on what the Lord has given you. He has already given you the fullness of his grace in Christ. And then he spends those five chapters showing them that grace is most practical. It is not some theological construct found in a seminary textbook. He is there to show them that grace is there to inform their workplace, their marriages, their relationships in their church. Every aspect of their life, grace is meant to live and thrive and come alive and provide them with a joy unspeakable in anticipation of Christ coming again. So when you look at that outline of 1 Peter as you walk through, you see in the very beginning, he tells them that, that what their identity is in verse 1, 1 through 2. This is your identity as children of grace. And then he goes on in the first chapter to show them the source and the nature of true grace. And after he showed them the source and nature of true grace, he goes on in the end of 1 and 2 and shows them how are we supposed to grow in grace. And then as he gets to 3 and 4, he shows them how they are to live grace in times of suffering and difficulty. In your home, in your marriage, with your wives, with your husbands, with your employers, with difficult co-workers. Grace is meant to be lived. And finally, he closes with how we're supposed to function in the church with one another and how we're supposed to defeat the enemies of grace in our lives. What is the message of 1 Peter as we go through in the weeks ahead? That God has already provided everything that you need in the cross of Christ. But one step further, God has given us that grace to live a new life. To live a new life filled with the Spirit and filled with grace that is there to sustain every aspect and every challenge of our life there is not one inch which is not meant to be transformed by the grace of God and Christ. And that's the love of Christ, and that's what he died for. And that is the testimony of Peter for each one of us. So what's the challenge of 1 Peter for each one of us? What is the grace that you're going to live by this week? Is it going to be a counterfeit grace where there is no presence of suffering, and there is no presence of Christ, and there is no presence of the cross? Or will we face the trials that are before us, family members who are sick, difficult employment scenarios, financial situations that are difficult, a church situation and framework where things are not resolved and it's difficult? Are we going to hear what the Savior has to say? As Paul went and said, I asked for this thorn in the flesh to be removed. How many times? Three times. And the Lord chose not to remove it, but said what? My grace is sufficient what? for your weakness and your frailty, right? Your strength, my strength is perfected in your weakness. So ultimately what? So that we would see the power of the Lord and the power would be of him, not of us and so that we would fulfill our destiny as children of grace, that our lives are shown to be joyful, good, rich, and wonderful. Why? Because the light within is the light of the grace of Christ, and it's the grace of the cross. Let's close in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us everything that we need to face the challenges which are before us. We thank you for your testimony that you came from glory to minister to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the testimony of 1 Peter that true grace is found, Lord Jesus, in you. Would you help us this week, Lord, to celebrate it and rejoice in it and to stand firm in it. In your name we pray, amen.